0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, talking about War and Peace Book 3, Chapter 7. Anna Mikhailovna always seems to be scheming to make her status and position higher. Is this chap in this chapter, Tolstoy notes, Anna Mikhailovna, though her affairs had improved, went on living with the Rostovs. What do you think her motivation is for staying with the Rostovs? Has she gotten all she wants already? And how does this chapter show the difference in understanding of war between the men on the lines and the families back home? Down to Earth says, This is chapter 6, not 7, correct? Yes, you are correct. I accidentally wrote chapter 7 in the discussion forum. This is actually chapter 6. I'll admit I'm having some. I'm having a difficult time following who is who in this book, and this is my first time reading it. I feel like I need a character summary that updates after each chapter rostov is the one who ran away and injured his arm yes that's right i find it interesting that he has been promoted i would guess that no one really knew how he was injured and why but assumed he acted in a proper manner during the battle correct that is young nikolai rostov that went and uh, got his arm hurt big blue banana says yep that's nikolai the one who was horrified at the battle on the bridge and then injured his arm Beard and Glasses 1994 said so doesn't help that there are two Nikolais. Yeah, there's Old Man Bolkonski. That's Prince Andrei's father, the grumpy old man. Prince, Princess Mary's father as well. Um, yep, that's Nikolai. Uh, and then there's Nikolai Rostov. And there's a lot of Rostovs. There's Rostov Natasha Rostova. There's Vera Rostova, the older sister Nikolai is the older brother, he's the one at the war. Petra Rostov is the little brother, he's at home. Um, there's the mother, Countess Rostova, I can't remember her name, her first name, the Countess though. Um, and is there another one? Sonia, Sonia the cousin, who lives there as well. Twisted every way says Anna M- Mikhailovna is just an old busybody with nothing to do, so she lives to be around a big loves to be around a big, bustling, rich family, so she can be involved in some family drama and politics, as evidenced by her scheme to tell the countess about the letter. She was practically giddy at setting up the hints, finally telling the countess and then informing the count like she did him a grand favour I have no doubt that something or another will come up, and she'll need more money, all the Rostov's connections. I can imagine how cherished a letter from someone off at war would be. Hopefully the money finds its way to Nikolai. I think um, you're right about her just wanting to be around. I think the, the Rostovs are a very influential family, and they're in the middle you know, of all these. Uh, they're connected to all these other very influential families. Um, so I think she's finding it as a good position for herself to maintain her connections among all the aristocracy. Rips to 66 says, I do believe this is chapter 6. It is. Sorry for that. For me, this chapter really put a context in Nicholas and his upbringing. Remember how he couldn't fathom being shot at during combat. He has known nothing but love and privilege all his life. His mother clearly adores him and spoiled him, and now he's thoroughly unprepared for the life of a soldier. He seems to have managed a promotion, though I wonder how he'll fare in this new role. Anna Mikhailovna is not going to walk away from a good situation if she doesn't have to. She's going to make herself useful, stay in the center of things, and maybe continue to wrangle some money or social connections for herself and her son. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, I love how Nicholas's letter is interpreted. He doesn't say much about his own experience in battle, understandably, since he was injured almost immediately. But his mother interprets that as humility. She reads between the lines and gets a very different picture than what actually happened. Reminds me of a modern day miscommunication via text lol. I liked how the more she read it, the more she found evidence of what a great kid he is, more and more as she read it. I thought it was really funny. Snapback Kid says, I have to say that one of my favourite things about the writing style in War and Peace are the final lines for a lot of the chapters read so far. It can make either make me super excited or dreaded what's to come. Maybe it's a pessimist in me, but I can't help but worry that all that love and all that money isn't going to reach Nikolai. I like um that as well, the way he, that he leaves every chapter on a bit of a cliffhanger. He, he makes you want more at the end of every chapter. It's very effective. Haruki says, I found the description of the Countess's love for Nikolai to be one of the most accurate and moving descriptions of a mother's love for her child. I have similar thoughts about my own son all the time. She seems like a kind mother. Too bad that her tenderness seems to stop at Vera. <laughs> yeah, Vera. Vera's a funny one. I um, oh, was reading about Vera before. Who made a comment about Vera? Oh, I can't... Follow. Oh, yeah, here we go. H. Vogarius says, I like to read Schmoop's study guide after each chapter before I jump on him. On here, sorry. On this chapter, it discussed how everyone was overwhelmed with excitement except for Vera, who is like some kind of robot watching humans expressing feelings. I laughed out loud reading that, picturing the scene in my head. All right, let's read the next chapter, shall we? It's chapter 7. Uh, i going to be reading Maud today. Uh, it's a bit of a long chapter. <clears throat> and it goes like this On the 12th of November, Kutuzov's active army, in camp before Ulmutz, was preparing to be reviewed next day by the two emperors, the Russian and Austrian. The guards, just arrived from Russia, spent the night ten miles from Olmutz and next morning were to come straight to the review, reaching the field at Olmutz by ten o'clock. That day, Nicholas Rostov received a letter from Boris telling him that the Ismailov regiment was quartered for the night ten miles from Olmutz and that he wanted to see him as he had a letter and money for him. Rostov was particularly in need of money now that the troops, after their active service, were stationed near Ulmutz, and the camp swarmed with well-provisioned settlers and Austrian Jews offering all sorts of tempting wares. The Pavlograds held feast after feast, celebrating awards they had received for the campaign, and made expeditions to Ulmutz to visit a certain Caroline. The Hungarian, who had recently opened a restaurant there with girls as a waitress with sorry, with girls as waitresses. Rostov, who had just celebrated his promotion to a Kornetsi and bought Denisov's horse, Bedouin, was in debt all round to his comrades and the sutlers. On receiving Boris's letter, he rode with a fellow officer to Ulmutz, dined there, drank a bottle of wine, and then set off alone to the guards' camp to find his old playmate. Rostov had not yet had time to get his uniform. He had on a shabby cadet jacket, decorated with a soldier's cross, equally shabby cadets' riding breeches, lined with worn leather, and an officer's sabre with a sword knot. The Don horse he was riding was one he had bought from a Cossack during the campaign, and he wore a crumpled hussar cap stuck jauntily back on one side of his head. As he rode up to the camp, he thought how he would impress Boris and all his comrades of the guards by his appearance, that of a fighting hussar who had been under fire. The guards had made their whole march as if on a pleasure trip, parading their cleanliness and discipline. They had come to easy stages, their knapsacks conveyed on carts, and the Austrian authorities had provided excellent dinners for the officers at every halting place. The regiments had entered and left the town with their bands playing, and by the Grand Duke's orders the men had marched all the way in step, a practice on which the guards prided themselves, the officers on foot and at their proper posts. Boris had been quartered and had marched all the way, with Berg, who was already in command of a company." Berg, who had obtained his captaincy during the campaign, had gained the confidence of his superiors by his promptitude and accuracy, and he arranged his money matters very satisfactorily. Boris, during the campaign, had made the acquaintance of many persons who might prove useful to him, and by a letter of recommendation he had brought from Pierre, had become acquainted with Prince Andrei Bolkonsky, through whom he hoped to obtain a post on the commander-in-chief's staff. Berg and Boris, having rested after yesterday's march, were sitting, clean and neatly dressed, at a round table in the clean quarters allotted to them, playing chess. Berg held a smoking pipe between his knees. Boris, in the accurate way characteristic of him, was building a little pyramid of chessmen with his delicate white fingers while awaiting Berg's move, and watched his opponent's face, evidently thinking about the game, as he always thought only of whatever he was engaged on. Well... "'How are you going to get out of that?' he remarked. "'We'll try to,' replied Berg, touching a pawn and then removing his hand. At that moment the door opened. "'Here he is at last,' shouted Rostov. "'And Berg, too. "'Oh, you pettison "'Allez cache d'omir!' he exclaimed, imitating his Russian nurse's French, at which he and Boris used to laugh long ago. "'Dear me, how you have changed!' "'Boris rode, r- rose to meet Rostov.' but in doing so did not omit to steady and replace some chessmen that were falling. He was about to embrace his friend, but Nicholas avoided him with that peculiar feeling of youth, that dread of beaten tracks, and wished to express itself in a manner different from that of its elders, which is often insincere. Nicholas wished to do something special on meeting his friend. He wanted to pinch him, push him, do anything but kiss him, a thing everybody did. But notwithstanding this, Boris embraced him in a quiet, friendly way and kissed him three times. They had not met... For nearly half a year, and being at the age when young men take their first steps on life's road, each saw immense changes in the other, quite a new reflection of the society in which they had taken those first steps. Boris, sorry, both had changed greatly since they met last, and both were in a hurry to show the changes that had taken place in them. "'Oh, you damned dandies, clean and fresh, as if you'd been to a fate, not like us sinners of the line,' cried Rostov." With martial swagger, and his baritone notes in his voice, new to Boris. Ah, uh, new to Boris, pointing to his own mud bespattered breeches, the German landlady, hearing Rostov's loud voice, popped her head in at the door. Eh, is she pretty? He asked with a wink. Why do you shout so? You'll frighten them, said Boris. I did not expect you today, he added. I only sent you the note yesterday by Bolkonsky, an adjutant. Of Kutuzov's, who's a friend of mine. I did not think he would get it to you so quickly. Well, how are you? Been under fire already? Asked Boris. Without answering, Rostov shook the soldier's cross of St. George, fastened to the cording of his uniform and, indicating a bandaged arm, glanced at Berg with a smile. As you see, he said. Indeed, yes, yes, said Boris with a smile. And we too have had a splendid march. You know, of course, that His Imperial Highness rode with our regiment all the time so that we had every comfort and every advantage. What receptions we had in Poland, what dinners and balls, I can't tell you, and the Tsarvich was very gracious to all our officers. And the two friends told each other of their doings, the one of his hussar revels and life in the fighting line, and the other of the pleasures and advantages of service under members of the imperial family. Oh, you guards, said Rostov, I say, send for some wine. Boris made a grimace. "'If you really want it,' he said he. "'He went to his bed, drew a purse from under the clean pillow, and sent for wine. "'Yes, and I have some money and a letter to give you,' he added. "'Rostov took the letter and, throwing the money on the sofa, "'put both arms on the table and began to read. "'After reading a few lines, he glanced angrily at Berg, "'then, meeting his eyes, hid his face behind the letter. "'Well, they've sent you a tidy sum,' said Berg, "'eyeing the heavy purse that sank into the sofa.' As for us, Count, we get along on our pay. I can tell you for myself. I say, Berg, my dear fellow, said Rostov, when you get a letter from home and meet one of your own people whom you want to talk everything over with, and I happen to be there, I'll go at once to be out of your way. Do go somewhere, anywhere. To the devil, he exclaimed. And immediately seizing him by the shoulder and looking amiably into his face, evidently wishing to soften the rudeness of his words, he added, don't be heard, my dear fellow, you know, I speak from my heart as to an old acquaintance. I don't mention it, Count. I quite understand, said Berg, getting up and speaking in a muffled and guttural voice. Go across to our hosts, they invited you, added Boris. Berg put on the cleanest of coats, without a spot or speck of dust, stood before a looking glass and brushed excuse me, and brushed his hair on his temples upwards, in the way affected by the Emperor Alexander, and having assured himself from the way Rostov looked at, it, at looked it that his coat had been noticed, left the room with a pleasant smile. Oh dear, what a beast I am, muttered Rostov as he read the letter. Why? Oh, what a pig I am, not to have written and have given them such a fright. Oh, what a pig I am, he repeated, flushing suddenly. Well, have you sent Gabriel for some wine? All right, let's have some. In the letter from his parents was enclosed a letter of recommendation to Bagration, which the old countess at Anna Mikhailovna's advice had obtained through an acquaintance and sent to her son, asking him to take it to its destination and make use of it. "'What nonsense! Much I need it," said Rostov, throwing the letter under the table. "'Why have you thrown that away?' asked Boris. "'It is some letter of recommendation. What the devil do I want it for?' "'Why, what the devil?' said Boris, picking it up and reading the address. "'This letter would be of great use to you.' "'I want nothing, and I won't be anyone's adjutant.' ''Why not?'' inquired Boris. ''It's a lackey's job.'' ''You are still the same diplomatist. diplomatist, but that's not the point. Come, how are you?'' asked Rostov. ''Well, as you see, so far everything's all right, but I confess I should much like to be an adjutant and not remain at the front.'' ''Why?'' ''Because when once a man starts on military service, he should try to make as successful a career of it as possible.'' ''Oh, that's it?'' said Rostov, evidently thinking of something else.'' He looked intently and inquiringly into his friend's eyes, evidently trying in vain to find the answer to some question. Old Gabriel brought in some wine. Shouldn't we now send for Berg, asked Boris. He would drink with you, I can't. Well, send for him. And how do you get on with that German, asked Rostov, with a contemptuous smile. He is a very, very nice, honest and pleasant fellow, answered Boris. Again, Rostov looked intently into Boris's eyes and sighed. Berg returned, and over the bottle of wine conversation between the three officers became animated. The guardsmen told Rostov of their march and how they had been made much of in Russia, Poland and abroad. They spoke of the sayings and doings of their commander, the Grand Duke, and told stories of his kindness and irascibility. Berg is as usual, kept silent when the subject did not relate to himself, but in connection with the stories of the Grand Duke's quick temper, he related with gusto how, in Galatia, he had managed to deal with the Grand Duke when the latter made a tour of the regiment and was annoyed at the irregularity of a movement. With a pleasant smile, Berg related how the Grand Duke had ridden up to him in a violent passion, shouting, and Arnauts." Sorry. Arnauts was the savage's favourite expression when he was in a rage, and called for the company commander. Would you believe it, Count? I was not at all alarmed, because I knew I was right, without boasting, you know. I may say that I know the army orders by heart, and now, and know the regulations as well as I do the Lord's Prayer. So, Count, there never is any negligence in my company, and so my conscience was at ease. I came forward." Berg stood up and showed how he presented himself, with his hand to his cap, and really it would have been difficult for a face to express greater respect and self-complacency than his did. Well, he stormed at me, as the saying is, stormed and stormed and stormed. It was not a matter of life, but rather of death, as the saying is. Albanians and devils, and to Serbia, said Berg, with a sagacious smile. I knew I was in the right, so I kept silent. was not that best, Count. Hey, "'Are you dumb?' he shouted. "'Still I remained silent. "'And what do you think, Count? "'The next day it was not even mentioned in the orders of the day. "'That's what keeping one's head means.' "'That's the way, Count,' said Berg, "'lighting his pipe and emitting rings of smoke. "'Yes, that was fine,' said Rostov, smiling. "'But Boris noticed that he was preparing to make fun of Berg "'and skilfully changed the subject. "'He asked him to tell them how and where he got his wound.' This pleased Rostov, and he began talking about it, and as he went on became more and more animated. He told them of his Sean Griburn affair, just as those who have taken part in a battle generally do describe it, that is, as they would like it to have been, as they have heard it described by others, and as sounds well, but not as at all as it really was. Rostov was a truthful young man and would on no account have told a deliberate lie. He began his story meaning to tell everything just as it happened, but imperceptibly, involuntarily and inevitably he lapsed into falsehood. It, If he had told the truth to his hearers, who like himself had often heard stories of attacks and had formed a definite idea of what an attack was and were expecting to hear just such a story— They would either not have believed him or, still worse, would have thought that Rostov was himself to blame, since what generally happens to the narrators of cavalry attacks had not happened to him. He could not tell them simply that everyone went at a trot and that he fell off his horse and sprained his arm and then ran as hard as he could from a Frenchman into the wood. Besides, to tell everything as it really happened, it would have been necessary to make an effort of will to tell only what happened. It is very difficult to tell the truth, and young people are are rarely capable of it. His hearers expected a story of how beside himself and all aflame with excitement he had flown like a storm at the square, cut his way in, slashed right and left, how his sabre had tasted flesh and he had fallen exhausted and so on, and so he told them all that. In the middle of his story, just as he was saying, you cannot imagine what a strange frenzy one experiences during an attack. Prince Andrew, whom Boris was expecting, entered the room, Prince Andrew, Prince Andrei, who liked to help young men, was flattered by being asked for his assistance and being well disposed towards Boris, who had managed to please him the day before. He wished to do what the young man wanted. Having been sent with papers from Kutuzov to the Sarvich, he looked in on Boris, hoping to find him alone. When he came in and saw an Hussar of the Line recounting his military exploits, Prince Andre could not endure that sort of man. He gave Boris a pleasant smile, frowned as with half closed eyes he looked at Rostov, bowed slightly and wearily, and sat down languidly on the sofa. He felt it unpleasant to have dropped in on a bad company. Rostov flushed up on noticing this, but he did not care, this was a mere stranger. Glancing, however, at Boris, he saw that he too seemed ashamed of the hussar of the line. <coughs> In spite of Prince Andrei's disagreeable, ironical tone, in spite of the contempt with which Rostov, from his fighting army point of view, regarded all these little adjutants on the staff of whom the newcomer was evidently one, Rostov felt confused, blushed and became silent. Boris inquired what news there might be on the staff, and what, without indiscretion, one might ask about our plans." "'We shall probably advance,' replied Bolkonsky, evidently reluctant to say more in the presence of a stranger. Berg, looked, Berg took the opportunity to ask, with great politeness, whether, as was rumoured, the allowance of forage money to captains and companies would be doubled. To this, Prince Andrei answered with a smile that he could give no opinion on such an important government order, and Berg laughed gaily. "'As to your business,' Prince Andrei continued, addressing Boris, "'we will talk of it later,' and he looked around at Rostov. Come to me after the review, and we will do what is possible. And having glanced around the room, Prince Andrei turned to Rostov, whose state of unconquerable childish embarrassment now changing to anger he did not condescend to notice, and said, I think you were talking of the Shongaburn affair. Were you there? I was there, said Rostov angrily, as if intending to insult the and aid the camp. Bolkonsky noticed the Hussar's state of mind, and it amused him. With a slightly contemptuous smile, he said, ''Yes, there are many stories now told about that affair.'' ''Yes, stories,'' repeated Rostov loudly, looking with eyes suddenly grown furious, ''now at Boris, now at Bolkonsky. Yes, many stories, but our stories are the stories of men who have been under the enemy's fire. Our stories have some weight, not like the stories of those fellows on the staff who get rewards without doing anything.'' ''Of whom you imagine me to be one?'' said Prince Andrei with a quiet and particularly particularly amiable smile. A strange feeling of exasperation and yet of respect for this man's self-possession mingled at that moment in Rostov's soul. "I'm not talking about you," he said. "I don't know you, and frankly, I don't want to. I am speaking of the staff in general." "I'll tell you this," Prince Andrei interrupted in a tone of quiet authority. "You wish to insult me, and I am ready to agree with you that it would be very easy to do so if you haven't sufficiently self—if you haven't sufficient self-respect." But admit that the time and place are very badly chosen. In a day or two we shall all have to take part in a greater and more serious duel. And besides, Drubetskoy, who says he is an old friend of yours, is not at all to blame that my face has the misfortune to displease you. However, he added, rising, you know my name and where to find me, but don't forget that I do not regard either myself or you as having been at all insulted, and as a man older than you my advice is to let the matter drop. "'Well, then, on Friday, after the review, I shall expect you, Dribetskoy. "'Au revoir!' exclaimed Prince Andrei, and with a bow to them both he went out. "'Only when Prince Andrei had gone did Rostov think of what he ought to have said, "'and he was still more angry at having omitted to say it. "'He ordered his horse at once, and coldly taking leave of Boris rode home. "'Should he go to the headquarters next day and challenge that affected adjutant, "'or really let the matter drop?' was the question that worried him all the way. He thought angrily of the pleasure he would have at seeing the fright of that small and frail but proud man when covered by his pistol. And then he felt with surprise that of all the men he knew there was none he would so much like to have for a friend as that very adjutant whom he so hated. All right, there we go. There's another chapter down. I love that last line. He hates him so bad and then at the same time he realises that of all the people here, he most wants him as a friend. Damn, that's cool. Um, Alright, have your say about that chapter over at the subreddit. Thank you for listening and I will see you tomorrow.